Good evening, everyone. What a joy it is to be gathered together again, to be able to come together as God's people and set our hearts towards Him, and to rejoice in Him, to love Him, and to be loved by Him, to see Him manifest His presence among us. Very, very warm welcome to all of you, and it is my prayer that God Himself would encourage your hearts and build you up, that by faith you might look to Christ and be blessed in the Beloved. I'd like to invite you to please stand as we come into God's presence. And as God himself addresses his people with the words of Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Amen and may God indeed help us to bless his holy name. Let's pray. Lord, as we quieten our hearts before you now, We do so because when all is said and done, when we gaze upon your splendor, we recognize that there is nothing we can say. There is no offering too great to lay down in worship of you. And so we pray that this evening, Lord, you would take it all, that you would just give us yourself. That we would delight in our great Lord, our Father, our Brother, our Holy Spirit. And that we might be satisfied in you. Help us this evening, Lord, to focus upon you after a busy day of fellowship and worship. And as we close out this Sabbath day in praise again, we ask that, Lord, you would draw us near to yourself. And that you would draw near to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come, brothers and sisters, let's worship our God with the words of Jesus shall reign.
Bibles with you here this evening. We're turning through to the Old Testament, through to 1 Samuel, as we continue journeying our way through the story of the Bible, just reading through the narrative sections. We find ourselves in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 6. We remember from last week that the Philistines had captured the ark. And they weren't sure what to do with it, so they kind of just sent it from city to city. And as they sent it from city to city, it ended up with it causing cancerous tumors everywhere it went by the hand and power of God. And we pick up with the story in 1 Samuel chapter 6. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what shall we send it to its place? They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence." The men did so, and took two milk cows, and yoked them to the cart, and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart, and the box with the golden mice, and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. 
Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the five golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated the son, his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Amen. The fruit of God's discipline and judgment upon the house of Israel is that they turn to him with their hearts, longing for him. And as we move forward, we'll see how that plays out in the life of Israel. But as for us, let us come to the Lord in a time of prayer. Let's pray.
Well, do we have any children that would like to come to the front? Well, have you ever had to wait a long time for something? Yeah, what have you had to wait for? Let me help you. Um, when's your birthday? Which one? 12. So on the 13th, what's the worst part about birthdays? Yeah, and you've got to wait all the way around to the other side. It's all like, yeah, it's my birthday, and you're looking forward to it. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then you finally have it, and there's the cake, and there's the candles. And if your parents are kind, presents, and all sorts of wonderful treats. And, and Grandma rings up and says, happy birthday, dear. And you're like, oh, thanks, Grandma. And all the cool things happen that happen at birthdays. And it's wonderful. And then the next day you wake up and you go, oh, man, it's not my birthday anymore. That's pretty lame. I've got to wait a whole nother year. A whole year, and you've got to wait and wait and wait, and eventually it comes back around. And it can be really hard, right? But it's way easier if you've got a calendar. Because if you have a calendar, you can see how long you have to wait, right? And so you start, my birthday's in October, so you get to September and you start crossing off the months. Like, yeah, one month down. Eventually you get older and you don't want to do this anymore. But then you cross off another month and you cross off another month and you cross off another month and you're January and then you're eventually into March and then you get to like September and then you're like, yeah, I can start crossing the days off. And you're like, yeah, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Slowly work your way through the month and you're like, oh, four days to go. And mum's like, how long to your birthday? And you're like, three more sleeps. And, and it's really exciting because you're looking forward to it, right? Uh, the same thing is true for Jesus. Not for his birthday, but as we look forward to him coming back, it feels like a really long time. I mean, does anyone know how long it's been since Jesus left? 2,024 years. Oh, you're pretty smart. That's right. About 2,000 years. It's been a long time. Anyone 2,000 years old? No. Oh, just one. Okay. Um, 2,000 years old. You'd have to be really, really old to still be waiting. Except for the Bible tells us, that the saints in glory are waiting too. All of the believers of God are waiting. But we're not just sitting around waiting. You know, there's different types of waiting. There's the waiting you do when you're sitting in the doctor's room. You know what that looks like, eh? Yeah, it looks, up, it looks something like this. And about 15 minutes later, and then about four hours later, because, you know, they take ages, they use, oh. I'm so bored. I just want this over. They're going to do something painful to me anyway. Can we just get this over and done with? That's not the sort of waiting we do. We do a different type of waiting. We're busily waiting. In fact, the word for waiting in the Bible is kind of like looking towards something. So rather than just sort of sitting around biding time, we're looking towards Jesus coming back. And we're going to be looking at that tonight in the sermon because God gives us a whole bunch of things to look forward to when Jesus comes back. And that helps us stay on track, stay motivated to live the lives God wants us to live. So let's pray and ask him to help us do that. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are with us. We thank you that there is a day coming when Jesus shall reign visibly before our eyes. We're from shore to shore. We will see 
his glory. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us patience, but especially that you'd help us to be faithful while we wait. Help us not to be like those that sit in a doctor's room, but help us to be busy as we wait. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Right, we're going to stand and sing again by the Sea of Crystal. This might be a new one for some of you, but it's a great hymn. Pay attention to the words, and then you guys can find worksheets after that.
Please be seated. Oh, sorry, wait, we'll pray, stand back up. Mate, I do this every week, I swear. It's right, it's good thanks, it's for the offerings. Father in heaven, we thank you. Thank you for the way that you bless us and keep us and cause your face to shine upon us. And so we are bountifully provided for. And we pray, Lord, that as we bring back a portion of our offerings this evening and also throughout the week online, we ask that you would take these gifts from our hands and use them for your glory and praise and honor, that you would use them to extend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, to extend the kingdom of God so that that tree might be fully grown and fill the earth and that saints may find nests in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We're turning through to the book of Titus. A little letter of Titus. If you're a visitor, we've been just working our way through the letter over the last few months. We find ourselves in chapter 2. This morning, we looked at verse 11 through 14 and thought a little bit about good works, thought a little bit about how salvation trains us in order to walk in godliness. And we're going to be picking up in the middle of that section in verse 13. Verse 13, I'll read from 11 to 15, but we're just looking at verse 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of our, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word to us. And before we come to consider it, let's humble ourselves before the Lord in a time of prayer. Lord, we pray that you would speak with power tonight. Lord, we don't just want to hear words of wisdom, as Paul would put it, but we want to hear words of power. We want to hear your word reverberating in our hearts, that we might love you and follow you. Father in heaven, we pray that you would build up your church through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the return of Christ feels like a long way away. And so we pray that you would help us to see it clearly tonight by the eyes of faith. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, just as a reminder, so verse 13, we're called in verse 12 to live godly lives in the present age, speaking about now. Verse 13, our text, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I remember quite a long time ago, I was watching a, a documentary on David Beckham, you know, the football star, on David Beckham. And he was asked the question by one of the interviewers, what did you do as a child? And, and you can probably guess what David Beckham's response was. He said, I played soccer. And they said, well, yeah, we understand that. But what, what did you do outside of soccer? And he said, I played soccer. And they said, yes, okay, did you do anything else? You know, like friends, fun activities, camping. He said, no, no, I just played soccer. That was all I did. And, and then he went on to explain to them that his one goal, his whole life, his one goal was to become one of the greatest football players of all time. And so he made the decision, even as a small lad, to, to lay aside everything, to, to give up everything, and he set his focus upon a future goal, and he said, I'm going to lay everything down and live for that. Nothing else matters except for that. I can see all my friends having fun, but none of that matters because the football world championship is coming. It's not just David Beckham, is it? You, you read stories of Olympians. I read the story of one Chinese Olympian who, after, after the Olympics, she was interviewed, a weightlifting champion. She got the gold. She was interviewed, and she, they said to her, are you happy? She said, I'm extremely happy because I can finally see my parents again. Because for the last four years, all she had done was train for weightlifting. And she's like, finally, I can just go and see mum and dad. There's this willingness to lay everything aside and pursue one thing. That's the idea of biblical waiting. So Paul tells us wait, right? Verse 13, waiting. We are waiting. The idea of waiting, it's lit quite literally, if you translated it really clunkily, looking forward, looking forward, anticipation. Looking towards a goal. Now, I, I said to you this morning, for those of you who are here, I said that we would consider the motivation for godliness tonight. What is it that's going to fuel faithfulness in our life? Because often, we know what we need to do, right? We've read the Bible. I mean, it's not rocket science. We know what we need to do. We heard what we needed to do this morning. But how do I do it? How do I remain motivated to actually get up in the morning after failing again and getting into it? What's going to motivate me to pursue holiness? That's what we're considering tonight. You see, what you set your eyes upon, what you focus upon, what you wait for drastically impacts the way you live, right? If you want to be a, a model, you're going to act in a certain way. You're not going to enjoy Krispy Kreme every other day of the week. Well, what if you want to what if you want to 
look forward to the day of the return of Christ with great anticipation. What if you want to look forward to everything that's coming for us and live for that day? We looked at what that might look like this morning as we live godly lives. But what are we actually looking towards? What's going to motivate us? What's going to, what, what can we lay before us like a carrot on a stick, for a lack of a better analogy, to drive us forwards toward eternity? Paul tells us three things. And we're going to look at these three things. Firstly, we're going to look at the eschatological hope. Now, for the children and maybe some of the adults who are wondering what eschatological means, it means the end times. Okay, so the eschatological hope is your new word for the evening. And the eschatological glory, that'll be our second point. And thirdly, our eschatological savior. So hope, glory, savior. Have a look at the text with me. So we're seeking to live godly lives, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Now, when Paul says our blessed hope, he doesn't mean hoping. You know, we can use hope like a verb. I'm hoping for something. I hope something happens. He's not using it in that way. He's speaking of a noun. He's talking about something, something in in the future, eschatological, something in the future to come, a hope that's in the future. Now, it's really important that you understand the way the Bible uses hope. I've said this many times, and I'm never going to grow tired of reminding you, hope in the Bible is not like luck. You know how we use hope in, in the 21st century? I really hope I get married one day. That's not how the... I'm already married, but you know what I mean. Um, that's not how the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses hope like a sure, guaranteed reality, a fixed thing. It's something you can bank on. Think of a check, when they used to use checks. I suppose that's not really a helpful analogy, is it? Think of some cash. If you have cash, you can use it for something. It's a certain reality. So too with biblical hope. So we are setting our mind towards the blessed hope. It's called blessed because it's based on God. So it's God's hope would be another way of saying it. What is this eschatological hope that we're looking for? Well, the New Testament describes this hope in four different ways. It talks about the hope of eternal life in Titus 3 verse 7. It talks about the hope of righteousness in Galatians 5 verse 5. It talks about the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8. And it talks about the hope of the resurrection of life in Acts 23 verse 6. So what, what hope are we thinking about? Because Paul doesn't tell us, does he? He just says the blessed hope. Well, the reason he just says the blessed hope is because he means all of them. The blessed hope that we are looking towards is the resurrection from the dead, salvation, righteousness, eternal life. What is this hope? It's, it's the thing we look towards to the day when all of our sorrows, everything that's wrong with this world gets undone. The pain, the affliction, the suffering, 
the sorrow, the torment, the persecution, the cancer, the car accidents, the grief of losing loved ones, all gone. That's the hope we're looking towards. But not just that, but the removal of sin. Isn't your sin something that grieves you? I did it again. Don't you, don't you long for the day when you will never just do it again? When you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect? That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to a day when my knees won't hurt anymore, as they do every day. Looking forward to a day when my mother's arthritis will be gone. Looking forward to a day when my grandmother will no longer have a stroke. Looking forward to a day when peace shall reign. We get a glorious picture of this in Revelation. Have a look at Revelation with me. Revelation summarizes this really beautifully in Revelation 7. Verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 13. One of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now listen to the things that are gone. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for the day when the lamb in the midst of the throne will be your shepherd? Not as he is now, but face to face. Don't you long for the day when he will lead you to living springs and wipe away the tears, wipe away the sorrows. There will be tears in glory, brothers and sisters. I know we often say there will be no tears there, but there will be when we first arrive. But our God will wipe them away. This is the hope that we look towards. And how, does that, how does that motivate us, though? Is it, well, it's great. I won't get sick anymore. That sounds pretty good. But how does that motivate me? Well, think about it this way. If there's not going to be sin in the new heavens and the new earth, that means there's going to be no gluttony, right? There's going to be no theft. There's going to be no uh, anger and hatred. There's going to be no gossiping. So if that's the thing we're looking 
forward to, would it not make sense that we pursue that with all of our might? Like if I'm looking forward to a day and I'm saying, Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come, that, that peace might reign. Should I not live for that today? Should I not pursue godliness because a day is coming when I will be godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if a day is coming when I will never die again, what is 70 years on this earth? Right? You're going to live forever. What's 70 years of, of godly living and denying your flesh compared to a life of bliss with the Lord Jesus Christ? It just puts things in its context, right? And so when you get up in the morning, you think to yourself, I'm just so tired of trying. I'm just so over it. I mean, I'm just going to mess it up anyway. You stop and you remind yourself that a day is coming where death will be gone and that every day of this life will be completely worth it. And so let me live with all my life, all of my might, with all of my zeal towards God and towards Christ, towards the one I will soon embrace because he will be in our midst. You know, the, re the reality is if you say you're a Christian and yet you don't want godliness, what makes you think you will want heaven? Because in heaven there is only godliness. We are motivated by the coming bliss that we will enjoy. And so we look, we look into the future towards eschatological hope, but then we also look into the future towards eschatological glory. Glory. So Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory. The appearing of the glory. You know, this world was created for the glory of God, wasn't it? The heavens declare the glory of God, we're told. The heavens shine forth His majesty. And it must have been a glorious thing to behold in the garden where no lion would eat you and everything worked in perfect, blessed harmony and peace where there was no sin, there was no corruption, where the image bearers displayed the glory of God to its fullest, where God had created this garden and put an image bearer in the center of it and said, reflect my glory for all to see. Fill this earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, spread my glory over the whole earth. And we messed it up. And what happened? Well, it's like in 1 Samuel, right? It's as though Adam and Eve wrote Ichabod. Remember that? Ichabod. The glory has departed. And they're, and they're cast into the wilderness with Ichabod written on their foreheads. 
Because no longer do they display the glory of God. No longer does the earth display the glory of God as it once did. It's not that it doesn't. Just like image bearers can display the glory of God, but not like they did. And so God, from that moment, was pointing towards a future where glory would be reestablished. Remember? What's in the temple? You get to the temple, and what do you see? You see lamps that represent trees. You see great pillars with gardens on them. It's meant to depict the first temple, the Garden of Eden. It's a picture of the glory of God. And what happens in that? No sin can come in. And it was to be a place where specially God's glory would be manifested in this world. But what happened? God wrote Ichabod on his own temple through the hands of the Babylonians, didn't he? Do you remember what takes place after the return from exile? That the old men who can remember what the temple used to look like when the foundation is laid, they weep. Why do they weep? Because the glory has departed. It's gone. And then we get to the, to the New Testament. And what do we run into? The temple of God reestablished. It's a vine, right? It's a tree. It's a body. It's a family. And who dwells in it? The Holy Spirit. The glory of God. And yet we backbite and we gossip and we slander and we hurt one another. And at times Jesus says, I will come and I will take away your lampstand. And he's done it throughout the generations, hasn't he? Look at North Africa. It was once the Christian stronghold of the world. It is now an Islamic stronghold. Not because Islam's great, but because God took the lampstand away. The glory has departed. But brothers and sisters, a day is coming when the glory will be established. Look at Romans 8 with me. Romans 8, and we'll pick up at verse 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him and in order that we may also be glorified with him. See what we're heading towards? So that we may in the future be glorified with him. Now, now look at the way then Paul shifts. So he's looking into the future glory, and then he shifts his focus to here today, and he says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Do you see what Paul's saying here? Through our fall, the entirety of creation has been bound down under our, under our sin, under the curse. And it's groaning, groaning under the weight of the curse of God. It's like that plank that you stand on and it groans and you think it might snap. And it's groaning, but what's it waiting for? It's waiting for the glorification of the people of God. When the people of God are finally glorified in God and with God in the new heavens and the new earth. The day when all of the misery and the curse will be taken away. And you will be made complete, perfect, blameless in God. And we're given a glimpse of this. Well, John's given a glimpse of this in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, he says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. See the transition here? We had a temple which was a garden. We had a temple in Israel. We have the temple of the church. We no longer need a temple because the Lord is among us. And the city has no need of a sun or a moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the lamb. By, the, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. Do you see the picture? The glory of God established once more. Image bearers made into the image of the blessed Christ. Perfected. Reigning again in this world. That's what we're heading for. That's what we're living to. That's what makes us zealous for good works because a day is coming when my sin will be gone. A day is coming when the lamb will be in the midst of us. There is a day coming when the king will be exalted upon the throne. There is a day coming when I will be in the very image of Christ. A day when glory shall shine. Don't you want that? Don't you want to see the glory of God? Do you remember Moses up on the mountain? God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. That's all I want to see. Show me your glory. Do you remember what the Lord says? No. No one can see my face and live. But I will show you my back. And he shows him just the edge of his garment. And Moses falls down in worship and prays. Well, brothers and sisters, the day when no one shall see the face of God and live shall be gone. For we shall see him face to face. We shall look upon his glory and not be ashamed. You see, here's the thing. For someone to dwell in glory, they must be glorious. Because otherwise, you're like Isaiah. What happens when Isaiah sees the glory of God, high and lifted up, 
Woe is me. But if sin is gone, there is no woe is me. We run into the glory of God rather than running away from it. This is what we walk towards. But there's one more. We've seen the eschatological hope, the eschatological glory, and now we see the eschatological Savior. Paul says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One of, the, one of the dangers we have when we, when we think about eternity is that we often end up thinking about stuff. We think about eternal life. Sounds pretty good. Think about our sore knees. We think about the death of our loved ones. We think about the removal of pain. We think about the removal of sin. We even think about Glory. We think about hope and glory. But we're tempted to stop there. Paul crowns hope and glory with a person. With our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This great God and Savior is speaking of Jesus. It's not the Father and Jesus. It's just speaking about Jesus. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I wonder, if, I wonder if the end of verse 13 reminded you of anything. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I wonder if it reminded you of something from two weeks ago. I know that's a long time to remember back to. But let me jog your memory. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Verse 11. It's interesting, isn't it? Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. Verse 13, the appearing of the glory of God. So why the switch? Why do we switch from grace to glory here? And how does that impact what we're looking towards? Well, you've got to think about the contrast. When Christ came the first time in grace, how did he come? He came in humility in a manger. He came in powerlessness. He came in weakness. He came in frailty. He came in human flesh. He came in order to suffer. He came in order to die. He came in order to be a man of sorrows. He came in order to serve. He came in order to be the least. He came in limited knowledge, in limited understanding, in limited wisdom, limited power, limited strength. In his humanity, you understand I'm talking of. That was the picture of the grace of God. Salvation bestowed upon all people through the birth of a Savior. But. The second appearing will not be like the first. For he came in humility, but he will come in exaltation. He came in weakness, but he will come in power. He came bringing salvation. He will come bringing judgment. He came to serve. He will come to rule. 
It is the opposite of his first appearing. What we look to be coming is not a child in a manger, but a glorious king. And so you remember the picture in Revelation? There's one coming on a horse, and on his thigh he has justice written upon it. And what's in his hand? And coming forth from his mouth, a sword. And he comes forth with a crown, and he comes to conquer. And there is no one that can stand before him. He marches through. It says that he treads the winepress of the wrath of God by himself, and the blood splatters his garments. That is the picture of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we look forward to. And you say to me, how can we look forward to that, Logan? What on earth is wrong with Christianity looking forward towards a day where Jesus will tread the winepress of God's wrath? The reason we look forward to it is because we're not going to be in the winepress. Because Christ is the Savior that is coming. And so, yes, he will come with judgment in his wings. And he will come with healing in his wings. He will come bringing a balm for the nations. Brothers and sisters, a person is coming. This is why we live in godliness for Jesus Christ. Because we long to be like the things we love, right? Isn't that true? You know, they say that the dog owners slowly end up looking like their dogs. I don't know how true this is, but since I got a greyhound, I lost a bunch of weight, so maybe it's true. Um, but they, yeah, they reckon there's this weird phenomenon where people who own dogs end up looking more like their dogs. We, we become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. So if we are looking towards the Lord Jesus Christ, we will become more like Him. But when we look away from Him to the world, we become more like the world. This is why we have to be so careful with what we do with our attention. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says, not just take sin off, but lay aside everything that clings to you. He's not talking about sin when he says that. Lay aside the good things that cling to you so that you can run faster. Set your sight upon the prize and run your race. Put your hands to the plow and labor in the field. Take up the weaponry you've been given and fight the good fight of the faith. You know, Lamentations 3, 24, Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Isn't that beautiful? That's after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Everything is just desecrated. Jeremiah can look up and say, the Lord is my portion. Not the rebuilding of the temple in 70 years. The Lord is my temple. Not eternal life. 
because John 17 tells us that eternal life is this, knowing Jesus and Him who sent Him. Is He your portion? Is He the one you're looking forward towards? Now, one of the joys of, I've spoken about this before, one of the joys of being a minister is is walking with people as they prepare for their wedding day. You know, where Gisela and I are doing some premarital counseling with a couple at the moment who are preparing to get married. And so we talk about weddings and talk about what's going on and we talk about the ceremony. And You know, what, what would you think of, of, the, of the upcoming bride if you spoke to her and you said, oh, how long until your wedding? And she said, oh, I'm getting, getting married in January 16th. And you said, oh, you got everything ready? Oh, no, we've still got a little bit of stuff to do. Oh, what have you got left to do? Oh, you know, we should probably make some invitations. You know, probably need to get a wedding dress, probably need some wedding rings. I thought about getting one of those wedding certificate things, but, you know, I haven't got around to it yet. In fact, we actually haven't done anything. What would you think? You'd think, you're a fool. Or you don't care about weddings, either way. You think, you've got to be prepared. Brothers and sisters, we're heading for a wedding day, right? It's coming. Don't ask me when it's coming. I'm assuming it's not coming in 2023, but we've still got a few hours left. Maybe it'll be 2024. Maybe it'll be 3,034. I've got no idea. And if anyone tells you they do, they're wrong. But this I know. A wedding is coming. Don't you love weddings? I love it. You get the little invitation and you pop it open. You open it. They invited me. They even invited me to the reception. They've even given me an invitation to sit at the head table and to lay my eyes upon the bridegroom and to take the cup from his hand and hear him say those words, take, drink ye all of it. The day when Logan will never have to minister the Lord's Supper again because the lamb in our midst will do it for us. And so Revelation 19 says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has procrastinated getting herself ready. Sorry, no. The bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And you ask yourself, what are the linen garments? You just want to know, don't you? What are the linen garments? For the fine linen 
is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's how we prepare ourselves to see him face to face. By receiving the salvation and righteousness of Christ given to us and his purchasing us in his appearance of grace and then putting on the righteous deeds of Christ by pursuing godliness. Let us do it. May God grant us to be dressed in fine linen, bright and pure today. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will sing joy to the world. The King has come. Let earth receive her King. We look forward to the day when hope and glory and our eschatological Savior will be ours. Help us to live for it. Help us to behold it and to become it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let us sing in response to God's word, joy to the world. Let's stand.
As you go forth into another week and another year, do so with the Lord's blessing upon you. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to our God and Father, to him be glory and dominion and authority now and forevermore. Amen. Now unto him.